This Westwards mini masterclass is a production of Westwards, the Western Sydney Literature Organisation. For more information on Westwards and what we do, please go to westwards.com.au. Hello and welcome to the Westwards Mini Masterclass. I am James Roy, your host as always, and today I am in the Blue Mountains in Springwood with uh, Victoria Brookman. How are you, Victoria? Good, thanks, James. How what are a, you? I'm well. What a day. Oh, lovely. It's, the sun is shining. It's, we're out in front of the hub, the lovely hub at Springwood. Uh, so if you hear traffic noise, that's just... Um, it's just Macquarie Road as cars go past, but That's it's just a, life in Springwood. It's just life in Springwood. Yeah. <laughs> in a nice Blue way. skies overhead, and um, I'm wearing a t-shirt, and you're wearing a light j- jumper. Yes. Um, people always told me that the Blue Mountains was cold. Do you know what? It's a different kind of cold. Mm. It's um, the Sydney cold is like it can be 18 degrees, and you just want to die. Yeah. Uh, but up here, it can be 12 degrees, and it's just nice and crisp. And you're walking around in a t-shirt, yeah. being like, "It's cool." That's good. Yeah. People, people talk about the Blue Mountains being cold, and um, my friend lives in Chicago. or lived in Chicago where it was minus twenty most winter <laughs> days. So, yeah, no, this is, yeah. <laughs> this is all right. Mild as hell. Um, the place that I used to go to when I was doing a lot of schools work used to go to Armadale, and up oh. there in winter it's cold. But I'd always say to the kids. Um, is this the coldest place on earth? And they'd all go in unison. No, Gyra. Apparently, Gyra. <laughs> That's so cute. <laughs> Gyra is the coldest place on the planet. So um, we well, yeah. should hear what the Gyra kids say. <laughs> oh, yeah, I don't know what they point to. Probably, um, I don't know, Springwood maybe. Okay. Um, so thank you for talking to us today. Now, I'm, I was really a bit um, in several minds. I won't say two months. Several minds about what I was going to speak to you about today and what we're going to discuss because. You've got a few, um, well, on your website, you talk about being an author, an activist, and an academic. Mm. And there's a few, you're also an East, Eastern Suburbs slash Sydney Roosters fan, <laughs> but we won't get into that. We're I'm going to apologise for we're that. Gonna, <laughs> we're trying to keep this family friendly. <laughs> um, um, but there's a few, you're also a Blue Mountains resident. You've been mm-hmm. up here for a few years. Uh, all of these things, I, I suppose, inform... Uh, inform your writing, in particular your first novel, which was called Burnt Out, mm-hmm. from HarperCollins. Yes. Yes. That came out what last year? You, yeah, yeah, January year. 2022. Right. Um, and that centres around a pretty traumatic event that took place in the Blue Mountains. Well, it's happened many times over mm. the years in the Blue Mountains, but the most recent one was that that. Oh, 2019, 2019. I'm aware that I'm talking to someone who used to be <laughs> used to be a, a Labor candidate, so I don't think I'm going to get any resistance from him when I say <laughs> the Scott Morrison bushfire. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> the one he was on holiday yeah, for. Yeah, the Hawaii the vacation Hawaii, one. Yeah, that's the one, yeah. yeah. Which I think is, um, yeah, I still kind of shake my head in wonderment at that particular scenario. <laughs> but it was amazing, wasn't it? It was quite astonishing. And um, I would refer you to one of our podcasts, uh, the one with... Ali Whitelock, who wrote a fantastic poem where she took the various tweets of Scott Morrison and the the fire authorities and put them together in this kind of found poem of great irony and tragedy and it's very good. But um, yeah, she was pretty angry. Yeah, I know, I think a lot of us were, yeah. yeah. So anyway, I, I digress a little bit, I suppose, but that, that in a way informed, or in a large way informed your your book mm. also I suppose the fact that you um, you're talking about in that book about a writer much like yourself yeah working on the second novel and mm. finding it a bit hard yeah 
which of those or being author or being activist or academic impacted most on how you write in that particular book? Um, I think at the time I, much like Kelly, I was struggling with a book. Um, so I, Kelly's a character from your so book. So Kelly is a... my main character, Kelly Lyons. Um, in the book, uh, her she's had a fantastic award-winning first literary novel. Uh, it's gone really well. You know, she won a, a prize that led to its publication and it sold really well. And everyone's like, so what are you writing next? <laughs> that question. That good old question, the one that every author loves. The one that I'm going to bring up at the, yeah, very, the very last gasp of this interview. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and so, but she has been sitting there for the last three years, absolutely choking <laughs> as she tries to write this book and she has an idea for the novel mm. and it, she just can't make it work. And yeah, a lot of people think that just the idea is the only thing and once you get that, exactly. you're away, but it's really not that simple, is it? That's it. And so, what that part of the novel is actually heavily based on my own experience of writing a novel about a family choosing to join a cult on mm. the north coast and I actually just gave that idea to Callie um, so that, that, that part of the book was that autobiographical was just <laughs> so what had happened was I had written that out of a master's thesis um, and I'd been working on it for five years and I, had, I loved the idea and it was so entertaining for me to write, but I just couldn't make it work in a way that was palatable to agents or publishers. And I, when you write something over and over for five years and you take it apart and you put it back together and you just do that over and over, you eventually get to the point where you're like, I don't know which way is up. And you like, end up, I it ends up looking like the first draft again almost. Yeah, mm. and you're like, well, I took this bit out and I changed the name of the place and I changed that character and then that had all these flow-on effects and it doesn't work as well anymore and you just are, like, completely at a standstill. It's and like a really complicated Rubik's Cube, isn't it? Exactly. You, sort of, you think you're all, you've almost got it solved but there's one piece out of place and suddenly it's back to being jumbled again. Exactly, mm. yeah. So... I was just absolutely at the point of giving up, not on writing, but just on that novel. And in fact, I did. I think it was about in October, November. I think it was probably November because it was just at the start of the black summer. Um, I just got to this point where I went, that was my last try. I am done. You've just got to eventually like abandon it, right? That's that whole thing, you know, good art is never finished, it's just abandoned. Yeah. And, but I abandoned it in a bad way. But that is advice a... we can give sometimes, <laughs> is that you can, sometimes you do have to go, well, this bit of work I've been doing, that's just been my scales, it's not going to be for performance. That's Exactly. But that's, that's the trick, isn't it, knowing yeah. which is which. Yeah, and I think after five years I was just like, no, I just can't do this anymore. It was, it was causing more harm to me mentally than it was fun anymore. So I was at that point, I was done with that novel, but I started going through this intense grieving process where Ooh. I was like, it felt like I had had all these people living inside my head and this beautiful, amazing, exciting page-turning adventure that I'd crafted. And suddenly none of them were ever going to see the light of day. No one was ever going to read this book. No one was going to pick it off the shelves. You know, my entire movie soundtrack that I'd made for it was never was never going to be released. Um, and, and and Chris Hemsworth was never going to play the satanic cult leader. And it was a tragedy. And so I was devastated. And then the Black Summer happened. And I had this idea that 
I was like, I still had like these boxes and boxes of work that I'd done where I'd printed it out, gone through it, red pens, blah, 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 just so much work on that novel that I was, that I just had sitting on a bookshelf. And I was standing in the shower one day um, and I love shower thoughts. <laughs> my husband's like, can you stop having such long showers? But my, like, it's where I get my thinking done, right? When my dad was doing his PhD, a little sidebar, when my dad yeah. was doing his first PhD, he's almost finished his second. He used to have a whiteboard in the shower. That's perfect. Because that's where his ideas come. So I'm gonna, I'm gonna get a shower it. whiteboard. Get a whiteboard in the shower. Jesus, that's clever. I love this. Yeah. Um, anyway, I was there in the shower, and I had this thought: What would happen if one of these fires that's surrounding my community just came right in and burnt everything? Just burnt every single draft that I'd worked on for that novel, all that work, five years of work, just literally incinerated. And I was standing there and I was like, I wouldn't be sad. <laughs> That's very telling, isn't it? Honestly, honestly, like, it's, it's such a millstone around my neck. I was like, I love that book, but it'd be a good excuse as to why I hadn't finished it. Well, I was going to finish it, but... It all burnt in the fire. I'm so sorry. Like, that's my reason for not getting that book published. Um, and then I, I thought, well, that's, you know, that's pretty funny. Like, it's a bit dark humour, but you do start having those dark thoughts mm-hmm. in, in the middle of a massive ongoing natural disaster. And so when you say that, you're talking about the natural disaster of your writing career? Or the, uh... <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> At the Wait, time. We I'm can't not. label it that yet, <laughs> okay. <laughs> um, and so I followed that thought. I was like, that could actually, that's kind of a funny premise for a, a novel. And um, so I just started following that thought, like, who, who could this author be who loses everything? What does their life look like? Um, and that is how Callie was born, and that's how her story came to be. It's, it's interesting that that's where you went because, you know, at that time when you were having that shower in, the, in that particular time, I, I mean, I, I live in the Blue Mountains as well, and I remember that it was so grim because we'd look at the map and mm. you'd see that basically most of Australia was on fire or, yeah. or felt that way. And um, I remember going to a one of the community um, information sessions mm. with the mayor and, and so forth, and... Um, I remember the guy from the RFS. This was after they'd done some back... After, this was up in Wentworth Falls. Mm. And they said, be under no illusion, if we hadn't done the preparation we did this last winter, we would have lost Wentworth Falls. And I'm not talking about a few houses. I'm talking about the entire village burnt to the ground. And, um, and yet you go with your manuscript. So, yeah. <laughs> I find that uh, I'm not I'm not throwing shade. I, I'm, I, I do find that interesting that that you would because the most writers would go let's write this dramatic story about people you know living the Ivan Southall thing in Ash Road or whatever. Mm. Um, I'm interested to know what's behind that idea of turning inwards. At that point, I think writing is such a turning inwards activity yeah. in general um we were saying before it's just it's a necessary necessarily solitary activity um it's all about being in your own head mm. and it did feel like another crisis that i had worked so hard on this book for so long um and as i said you know i was mourning that book i was mourning those characters i guess in a way i wanted to give them some kind of meaning and I did, right? Maybe no one will ever read that book, but the people who've read Burnt Out <laughs> will know well, no how Callie was <laughs> freaking out about trying to make it work. 
But I mean, look, I, I know it sounded my last question sounded a bit flippant. I didn't mean it to, to <laughs> because what I'm what I'm getting at, I suppose, is when you're looking at the the internal journey of Callie and, and the way her story goes, it is against this backdrop of this massive environmental catastrophe. Mm. Um, we talk about yeah, one quote that podcast listeners have heard me use before is. Uh, a drop of ink may make a million thing you know, by Lord Byron mm. and it was there a point where you thought this story about this let's be honest slightly self-obsessed mm. writer and her annoying agent and mm. all the rest of it <laughs> um, there's a bigger story a bigger message I, God I hate that word but there's a there's more to say about bigger things yeah look honestly i having written so the cult novel was my second novel that i had failed to well you know my second novel that i'd finished several times over and not managed to find an audience for and um and by the time that i was writing burnt out i actually just wanted to write a good story um and um as you mentioned before i have history as an activist and i have a history as a political staffer and a political candidate um, so I've been around politics my entire adult life mm-hmm. and, you know, been, had parents talking about politics when I was a kid. Um, it's always been a backdrop of my life, but I think that it was always going to bleed in a bit into my work, but I really didn't set out to write a political novel. It just kind of turned out that way. <laughs> I mean, if you were... Do you think the idea that you were so invested in politics as an idea and the... the the wheels within the wheels of politics and mm. changing public opinion or not even changing public opinion but reflecting public opinion in policy all those sorts of things um was there a point where you went none of these particular you know that, that thing where you hear people say oh i don't care about politics they're mm. all the same which i that's like a red rag to a bull to me because yeah, I, my yeah. answer to that would be no not not all politicians are the yeah, same you can put yeah. you know um but was there a moment where you went the usual ways of trying to affect change aren't working maybe I'll go back to something that is as old as time which is tell a story that might change opinion is that something that crossed your mind no not while writing it no um honestly I yeah as I I said you know I've been involved in activism um been involved in a lot of election campaigns there's a lot of voter persuasion we do um been very involved in actually making the persuasive material so I understand why that might seem like there is a more deliberate connection there but it actually I was in part trying to challenge myself to write a more simple story um and so I so I wrote the first lines of Burnt Out when I was actually evacuated preemptively evacuated um on one of those really bad catastrophic days um I was down with my family in um, Penrith Westfield um, standing outside Big W, and I wrote the first lines that came to sprang that sprang to mind, which were about um, having to clean the toilet with the lavender scented detergent before she left, you know, before she evacuated. And I just kind of jotted that down and was like, "Huh, that's you know, I like that idea." <laughs> um, and um, it's but a little I bit really... like wearing your best your best undies in case you get hit by a bus. Exactly. Right? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. But I, I really, when I went into it, I started planning it quite intensively during the black summer. I think partly because we were all trapped inside um, with the horrible air. And so, you know, we just basically sat inside in the air conditioning with all the, you know, with the towels against the windows and doors, as you would know, being a mountains person, and just like tried to breathe clean air basically inside because the whole of Sydney was smoky, right? <laughs> like you couldn't even just go into the city and not be breathing horrible air. Well, I mean, I was, 
<laughs> I was busy looking up on the internet what the tar content of 100-year-old timber was because our nice. house is very old. And I, I thought, how long would it take to go up? If, and it wouldn't have been long. It would have been about 30 seconds, I oh, think. Oh, God. <laughs> so, so that, that, how that quickly goes, will I die? That, <laughs> which, which pet do I love most? Oh, my <laughs> God. But it was like that, right? It was you, like that. You started was making grim. these weird clinical mental decisions of going like, I don't want to think about any of this, but well, you also if think about I the had fact to leave several things behind, which would be my priority? What can also I not replace? other things to think about in the mountains, like, you know, there's only one road out in each that direction. Was, you yeah, are, that's our case. If it comes yeah. in both directions, you're kind of stranded. And, um, exactly, and our road gets quite narrow, so the fire trucks wouldn't have been able to, you yeah. know, there would have been problems with fire trucks getting down, especially if traffic was banked up. There's a lot of problems, and ultimately our decision every time there was a catastrophic day was... We just leave. We, like we just go. Yeah. We, we take some clothes and we take, you know, our birth certificates and stuff and we just get out of here. You know, dental records. No, that's a bit grim, isn't it? Oh, my God. So, <laughs> that was, that's very dark. <laughs> Welcome to the mountains. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so, yeah, so, um, so it wasn't until after you'd finished the book that you kind of... Did you... I think the politics just bled into it naturally. Did I think you, I'm just on, that kind of person right. who looks at it through that lens all the time. And and it was important to me as well to show Callie going through a personal transformation. You're right, she's very self-centred. She's turned inward. She is like, OK, will everyone just leave me alone? And look, later on, after everyone started talking about ADHD, I, as, as a... I was diagnosed as a child as ADHD, right, but had kind of decided I'd grown out of it when I was in my early 20s. Not that that's actually a thing, you can't grow out of it. But um, so I wasn't really engaged in that space. And in over like 2020 and 2021, people started talking about ADHD heaps, right? And I realised after the novel came out, hearing certain people's reactions to the way that Callie behaves or the decisions she makes, I realised that Callie is completely undiagnosed ADHD. She, she, and so, which gave the title Burnt Out a whole extra meaning because, I mean, it's obvious she's burnt out, but she is like full yeah, right. <laughs> neurologically burnt out at the start. And, all, and those, I think, all those fuses have blown at some point. Exactly. Oh. And everyone's going, just give us the thing. Just do the thing. Just do the thing. Write the novel. Why haven't you done it yet? And she is there just like, oh, of uh, course she's I've turned I've got to say, inward. it really resonated with me that, and if any, any people who are looking at any of my work right now are listening, you should stop for a moment because <laughs> <laughs> that moment where she goes, look, I haven't got anything written yet, but I'm, I'm going to, I'll write something so they'll, yeah. that will buy me some time, yeah. right? <laughs> We've all That's done right. that. Yeah. <laughs> well, Scott Morrison did that. He went to Hawaii. Yeah, That's what he did. But he's like, what, well, my travel time, time will count as work. <laughs> we could do a whole podcast about that horrible, oh my God. That horrible experience. But um, was it you or your publisher or someone who went, hang on, this is actually quite a political book? I don't think that was ever a formal conversation we had. Um, so I, as a debut novelist, actually didn't have an agent or a publisher when I was writing a book. Mm-hmm. So I didn't have anyone kind of checking it over going, oh, this is, you know, lean into this or yeah, that. Yeah, yeah, Take um, that thread and take it a bit. Exactly. Know. And, you know, of course that happens afterwards. There was a lot of editing went on, and, and which was a fascinating process. I, 
you know, it's stressful doing edits, right? But it's actually also really cool to see how one idea will change or be brought forward or certain things will kind of be adjusted for balance so that you can see this character more and that character is not taking over. Um, I mean, you did your Masters of Creative Writing. But, yeah. Um, I think it's Sydney Uni where I did mine. But um, I actually did my Masters at Macquarie. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah. No, please um, get it right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, where did, what did you do at Sydney then? I read something. I did my English honours at oh, Sydney. Okay, gotcha. Yeah. Right, so. Yeah, but I mean, the point still stands. It doesn't really... That loneliness or solid, solitarity... Solitarity, I like that. <laughs> what, what is the? What is the? <laughs> you think about solidarity, but solitary. We work with what's words. What's the word? The thing that. <laughs> I'm going to start saying solitarity. What is the word? <laughs> the, that, solitude. Solitude. There you go. That's, ladies and gentlemen, you heard it here first. Solitarity. Solitarity forever. <laughs> that's 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 what that's what this podcast is going to be called. Solitarity. Yeah. But that solitude that you talk mm. about as a writer all the academic stuff in the world can't prepare you for that and oh, for the, yeah. the, um, the editing and the brutality of that can mm. it? Oh my god the editing was such a <laughs> so confronting right mm. at every stage <laughs> but as I said fascinating and now that I'm beyond it I'm like oh yeah you know I actually really like that aspect of the publishing process but well, it depends who God. your editor is too i mean you can yeah. have one some who are sort of lauded over you as a as a new novelist absolutely and, yeah. and you know i really liked all my editors but there were things i had to push back against um or sometimes things where they said we'll just cut that entire thing cut five chapters here because we can't see the point of it and i was like angry like i was mm-hmm. so angry right but i went away and thought about it and was like what they're really saying and I think this is key to a lot of people when they get their feedback is sometimes feedback where they say that doesn't make sense it doesn't mean it doesn't make sense it just means you need to draw it out a bit more and make it more obvious as to why it makes sense for the story or repurpose it perhaps yeah. or whatever it might yeah. be to stay in the academic kind of section of this conversation mm. what you're doing a PhD now I am yeah it's actually a doctorate of creative arts at Western Okay, and uh, what's your thesis? It's an, obviously a, a creative mm. project with a dissertation. What's, yeah. your, what's your thesis or your dissertation? Uh, so, yeah, it's technically an exegesis. Um, so I'm doing a novel for it, um, which is called The Norwegian, and um, the exegesis is the theoretical component, mm-hmm. and that is an examination of um, mothering in climate crisis novels. Um, so contemporary climate crisis Um, So kind of eco-anxiety, mothering, how does having a child with you in the middle of ecological collapse affect a story, basically, and affect the character's decisions? Um, It's kind of, you know, and looking at the idea that children are kind of, you know, culturally of this idea, like, children are the future, right? Children are a representation of the future, something you have to take care of. But the earth is something that we should have been taking care of. What happens when when we haven't been taking care of the earth, but we still have these kids to take care of. You can hear the kids now. Yeah, appropriately, well, this I mean, children the, thing. Yeah, the, yeah, I mean, look, there's that old, that old saying um, that you don't leave the world for your kids, you borrow it from them. Exactly. Um, it, I guess a couple of observations I'd make here. One is that it's disappointing that we actually have a whole genre of writing now that is right. climate, climate <laughs> yeah. crisis writing. Yeah. 
it's it's a really fascinating, um, often incredibly depressing genre to work in. But um, yeah, it's it is really interesting, especially when you start to bring in um, developing theories about actually about what you were saying before about bringing politics into literature as a kind of an extra messaging tool um and i'm i always want to steer clear of talking about books as propaganda because i think that's uh, you know it's obviously a very loaded term historically and it's also well, a bit a, like the word message which i, I, I yeah, find yeah yeah from. well that's right and it, and it, it describes a huge layer of meaning to an author's process when perhaps like me they just wanted to write a good book and something that spoke to them um but you know so you don't want to straight up be like these writers uh these authors are all generating propaganda but it you still have to account for the fact that books will often change people's opinions they'll change the way they look at things um so what's that effect and how do how do children being present in the novels actually heighten that sense of empathy and that understanding that a reader might take away from those climate-driven novels. The first thing that comes to my mind when you mention that is um, a book like Beloved by Toni Morrison. Oh, I love it. like one of my top five. Right. Yeah. But the point I was going to make is that, yes, the, the children are a central part of that mm. story because that is a fulcrum around which her decisions are made and, yeah. and, the, and the horror that is, is slavery mm. is exposed, or not exposed, but, you know, rift on if you like mm. but I suppose the troubling thing for me about books like Roots or Beloved or any of those, those sorts of books is that they were written after the emancipation and mm. problems still remain but we don't want to leave our climate books until after it's too late so either. true yeah <laughs> yeah yeah so how, how do you how do you respond to that idea I haven't really thought about that yeah <laughs> Honestly, oh no! I've got to write another chapter oh, in my no. thesis now. Oh shit! To add it in. Um, no, but we are trying know, to get. We're it's true. Hopefully, it's, trying to get ahead of the, the curve, right? Even though exactly. it is a little too late, but it's not all lost. Exactly, and um, I guess that is part of it. Is that you don't want people kind of diving into climate fiction to try and make themselves feel better about stuff because everything seems to be going to shit in the real world. Um, and uh, I suppose there's probably a dimension to climate fiction where you go, well, at least it's not this bad yet. Like, mm. uh, okay, look, it's all looking really bad and the scientists are like, we are so fucked. But at least I'm not living in this world where they've literally run out of water. Well, <laughs> I mean, there's, there's, there was that show, Don't Look Up, which... Oh, uh, yeah, that was up. awesome. Well, and that was about a meteor that's about to hit Earth, mm. but it was really about... Climate change. Climate yeah. change and... and not listen to the science. Mm. I loved ex- how people really ragged on that film. Right, <laughs> but then Extrapolations came out. I don't know if you watched Extrapolations no. yet, but this is this is a show set in the near future mm. that is about global response in all different places. They're self-contained episodes, but mm. um, global response to climate change after it's a little bit late. Mm. I've read about it, but I haven't watched it yet because I don't feel ready. I, I don't. Oh, I, it, it, yeah. it hurts to watch it. Yeah. How do, you, how do you approach that? How do you, how do you get people to go, look, this is going to hurt, but it's important, rather than go, yeah, yeah, I know it's grim, but today I, w- I just want an airport booked and I don't yeah. have to think about it. Yeah. I know, it's a really tough one, and it, it's why I will never set out to write a book that is overtly trying to deliver a political message, because I don't think that's the way you get to people. Um, and that's one of the loveliest pieces of praise I've received about my book, is people saying 
it, yes, it was political, but I didn't feel like I was getting hit over the head with it. Um, I felt like I came to an understanding, but I didn't feel like I was getting preached to. And, um, you know, as I mes- mentioned earlier, I've worked on a lot of political campaigns, election campaigns, and, you know, you have to deliver messaging that is, you know, hitting certain targets and using certain persuasive language. And, you know, we do entire courses on how to campaign to people effectively. And to actually hear that from people about something that I was not trying to... <laughs> not trying to deliver any political message through was just you know having a fun time with is a is a huge compliment well one of the books that i remember reading cover to cover i was actually very quickly i was actually in hospital at the time with some things and um stark by ben elton oh yeah remember that one i haven't read it you haven't read it and it it's sort of similar to what you've done in that it's funny but has something to say although in typical ben elton style when he's not writing upstart pro or or um Black Adder, mm. he just tends to be a bit ham-fisted. Yeah. He's sort of like, okay, and by the way, guys, while I'm being funny, have you noticed how shit the planet is? <laughs> <laughs> and I'm glad to, I was glad to see that that wasn't something that you were going to accuse your book of. It was yeah. a little more subtle. Thank though. you, yes. Yeah. <laughs> um, we are going to have to wrap it up because we've been talking for half an hour and, um, and we could go on forever. Mm. Uh, one more question for you. Mm. You talked about which which of the um, which of the Hemingways what Hemingworths was it Hemsworths Hemsworth, Chris Hemsworth <laughs> Chris the Hemingway. only one that matters the okay only one that matters. okay <laughs> so you had him sort of penciled in for the lead of this the, the oh, guru yeah, book oh yeah for the cult the yeah cult the book. cult leader yeah and yeah. Um, you had your soundtrack all prepared mm. ready to go have you done the same thing for this book Who, who's going to play Callie <laughs> actually Sarah no Snook <laughs> such a good idea she'd be good I, I actually didn't ever cast this book and the reason is I actually wrote it quite quickly so I didn't have that well, five on, years to sit now. around and dream about <laughs> stupid aspects of it like who were my casting choices uh, the only one I ever mentally cast was Arlo the billionaire oh. um, I saw him in my mind as a Jamie Dornan type oh. who are you going to say <laughs> I was going to say Sam Neill. Oh, my God, no. <laughs> a little old. No, no, Jamie Dornan all the way. <laughs> Sam, no, it might be Sam Neill. But, like, Jamie Dornan ago. with an Australian accent? I don't know. No, you wouldn't want to put it on him, yeah, would yeah, you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, Kelly could be Sarah Snook and the, mm-hmm, the age, mm-hmm. the horrible... Uh, Nicole Kidman could play the horrible age. Oh, that's so true. Yeah. Do you well, know there were so many people in the industry when I had this book that was first you know when it was on submission they all wanted to know including the agents that i talked to about the book they all want to know is this agent based on anyone <laughs> in the australian industry and i was like no it's been great chatting but with do you, you think she is <laughs> <laughs> and who do you think it is and i will blink or nod or <laughs> yeah. morse coded <laughs> morse coded yeah 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 no uh, she wasn't so you haven't come up with a soundtrack like no, uh, no, I haven't. No, I'm sorry. But we, I have for my next one. Oh, okay. Yeah, so... Well, that's good. Yeah, stay we tuned. Know, we know nothing about the book, so <laughs> you telling us what's in the soundtrack would make no sense. Yeah, absolutely. But, okay. <laughs> well, thank you so much for talking to us thank today. You. Really appreciated it, and we look forward... Oh, mm. I almost forgot. Oh, whoa, whoa, whoa. What are you working on? What's the second book? Come on. So, all right, look. This is, I'm kind of cheated on this. Uh, so my second book is already complete. It's called The Norwegian. It's my thesis book. Mm-hmm. But I don't think that'll be the second book that I publish. Mm-hmm. Um, this, the second book that I publish is 
um, it's called the Love Farm. <laughs> it like, is just like, like a veering. song from Spinal Tap. Right? Yeah, yeah. It is. It, it's my same style, but it's veering far more towards the rom-com aspects of things. Um, but I suppose, in a literary way, it's you know, it's a bit of an interrogation of um, wellness culture and um, self-styled gurus and goop. and goop. Yeah, probably. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, it's fun. Activated, it's ar- fun. activated almonds. Yeah. All that nonsense. Yeah, yeah. Special eggs. <laughs> we will leave that there. Yeah, all right. Sounds good. Thank you so much. Thank you.